everybody should have received a bookmark that says Noshings. And it says to eat food enthusiastically. Anybody fit in that category? Yeah, most of you, right? So we did nine of these in the fall, in the spring. We're going to do nine in the fall. What it is, is we have uh, folks in our fellowship who are opening up their homes all through Delaware County, strategically in every county, every part of the county where people live. And we're sharing our 2020 vision, which is possibility of an extension campus, a Christian school. You see the construction for phase two and some global partnerships that you're going to actually see those people on our stage in Kenya and some other parts uh, of the globe in the fall. So we really want everybody who says this is their church, this is about as close to mandatory as anything gets around here, to be at these noshings. Um, again, it's all through the fall at strategic times. You'll notice that the first one or the first two are uh, 913. Uh, one in Broomall, one in Garnet Valley, so both sides of the county. Now, some of you guys, I'm a guy, so I know what's going on in your brain. Wait a second, September 13th, football starts, the Eagles are playing. No, they don't. Uh, we're strategic around here. They open on Monday night, so you got a clean slate to come to Anoshing. And we didn't do that because of you. Uh, Pastor Steve informed us he couldn't go to any Noshings that had Eagles games, so uh, we had a plan around his schedule. Uh, make sure you get out to these. We're excited about where God's leading us. We've got rough sledding this morning, so let's pray. God, we know you're a benevolent God. We know you're intrinsically good. Lord, you're the way, the truth, and the life. There's no shadow in turning in you. God, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that's what we love about you. Lord, you knew who would be in this room and who wouldn't be in this room from the foundation of the world. So there's something you want to communicate. There's something you want to speak to these people. Not my words, Lord, but the words that would come by your spirit and, and produce 30, 60, and 100-fold. So uh, we ask for your guidance as we move, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this is our last week of a series where we're looking at the difficult or hard sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, if you've read ahead, and after you read the text, or when I read it, you will agree this may be the most difficult. So uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 19 says, there was a certain rich man. So we know this is a parable, it's a literary device, an extended metaphor, uh, very popular among Jesus' teachings. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was, the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, the Greek word for hell, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us there is a great gulf fixed so that you know, those who want to move from one place to the other cannot pass by. Verse 27. And then he said, Well, then I beg you, therefore, Father, that you send him to my father's house. Send Lazarus, for I have five brothers that they may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Third time the word torment 
is mentioned there for this place called Hades. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. That's enough. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes out from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses, if they don't listen to the Bible, neither will they be persuaded that one would rise from the dead. Next to pain and human suffering that we endure in this life, the trials of this life, uh, nothing is more problematic to believers and non-believers alike than this idea of a final judgment and of a possibility of a human being going to a place of torment called hell. And here's why it's difficult. Number one, it is final, okay? You know, we're, we're a country, a generation that has an out clause for almost everything. There's a way out. We'll, we'll find our way out. Uh, this is final. There's a great gulf fixed. Uh, people are actually going to go there, really good people. And finally, and I think this is the conundrum for believers, we have to balance this, what we know to be the character of God. God is love. God is benevolent. God is kind. You know, we read in the Old Testament about the hesed, the kindness of Almighty God, which leads us to a question, how could a God of love and grace send anybody to hell? Several years ago, Rob Bell was at the height of his popularity. If you don't know who Rob Bell was, he was a pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He was famous for his NUMA videos, really well-done vignettes about different parts of the Christian faith, and uh, caught on like wildfire among the younger generation. He had speaking tours. He also authored several controversial books. They were controversial because he questioned the assumptions of evangelical Christianity, not the Bible so much, but evangelical Christianity. So I was watching on YouTube a trailer of his latest book, this is years ago, uh, that was going to be about hell, and it was called Love Wins. Now, because of the title and uh, the nature of what he was writing about, people jumped to conclusions. I remember the people I was watching the trailer with saying, he's going to be on the cover of Time magazine. People are like, are you nuts? I'm like, I'm telling you. Trust me on this one. It's been like seven years since a prominent evangelical has been on the cover of Time. Hell's a big topic, and this is a big topic within the church. Now, I am not a prophet. I don't make predictions, but Rob Bell was on the cover of Time magazine. And uh, it caused a big firestorm. The book wasn't even out yet. And John Piper, who has since repented, said farewell to Rob Bell. He had never even read the book. A lot of guys who had never read the book start talking about the issue, and of course then all the books and messages came out about hell. One guy started his message saying, I haven't preached on hell in 30 years, but here we go. And I thought, wow, the book really worked, you know? This guy's teaching about hell. My son, who was 24 at the time, was looking at all this, and he said, he said Dad, you know what benefit my generation? If all these great church leaders would actually sit down together and discuss this idea, because th this is tough sledding for us. You know, we have questions about this. This is one of those days where if our cafe was built, after the third service, I said, look, everybody, get a cup of coffee, and we'll dialogue about this for a couple of hours. It's that important. I want to hear what you have to say. Give me your questions, because this is how we learn. Um, let's put assumptions aside. Uh, hell. You know, we hear about fire and brimstone. We, the devil in a red suit, a pitchfork. Uh, we have the cultural hell. We have what Christians have said. I don't want you to put scripture aside because Jude said what we believe has been handed down once and for all by the saints. So I stand here today on great shoulders of men who have come before me. 
We're not here to say, does hell exist or doesn't it exist? We're here to say, let's put all assumptions aside and see what the Bible has to say. So the path I'm going to take us on is we're going to look at the parable, and every so often I'm going to jump out of the parable and give you some logic for why I believe there's life after death, a final judgment, and a place called heaven and hell outside of the Bible. Why do I want to do this? Because when you're witnessing to someone and you tell them about something, the afterlife, heaven or hell, Jesus, and you say, well, the Bible says this, the first thing they're going to say to you is, I don't believe the Bible. So you've got to use logic and common sense. Uh, nature reveals God, right? You know, sometimes we, we have to use the things around us. Here's what we have to understand. Jesus is the one we're looking at this morning. These are his words. We know more about the life of Jesus than any leader in antiquity. We have four records of his words recorded. They're in red in your Bible. Most of us believe Jesus is Lord and Savior. If you're a skeptic this morning, you have to acknowledge this. Jesus is a historical figure. There is no, no dispute about that. Jesus is the most influential religious leader that ever, ever lived. There is no dispute about that. I believe, outside of even faith, he's the most influential human being that has ever lived. We've changed time based on his life, before Christ and A.D., the year of our Lord. So, Jesus talked more about hell, more about the afterlife, than anyone in the Bible and anyone who ever lived. 1 Peter 3.15 says every believer should be able to give a defense for the hope that's in them. So let's look at the parable. There's actually eight characters in the, in the parable. The rich man, Lazarus, Abraham, and the rich man's five brothers. But only two people speak, the rich man and Abraham. It's really a story about two characters, the rich man and Lazarus, because they represent the entire human race. I share with you before, the Bible is very simplistic. It divides everything into twos. There's two roads, two gates, two trees, two foundations. There's sheep, there's goat. There's only two types of people that have ever lived. And you're going to fall in one category or the other. Let's start with the rich man. He's identified as a certain rich man. Now, Jesus uses this a lot, right? There was a rich man who had barns, and he had a problem. What's he going to do? He has more goods coming, so he tore one barn down. He built another. Jesus talked about a lot of rich men. He talked about the rich young ruler. This man's identity seems to be in his riches. He's a man of status. How do I know? It said he was clothed in purple, and a purple dye at that time came from shellfish. It was very expensive. Remember, Lydia in the book of Acts was a seller of purple. She was a businesswoman. So to wear something that was dyed in that day, every, it was like Gucci or Armani. Everyone knew. It was a $3,000 suit. But the Greek says he fared sumptuously. The word there is lampros, which means he radiated brilliantly. He was flamboyant. Uh, he lit up a room. You ever see people like this? Not only are they rich, they have charisma. They may have given a TED Talk. Uh, they're just rich and powerful people, and everybody knows it. Don't think for a minute he's not a man of faith. Almost no one was an atheist in this part of the world at this time. And notice what he says in the afterlife. He, he notices Abraham. He says, Father Abraham. He's a religious man. Abraham says they have the law and the prophets. He's a Jew. He understands religious terminology. You might say, well, how is this possible? Can religious people go to hell? Yes. Um, in the chapter 16, there's a parable of the unjust steward. When Jesus tells that parable, in verse 14, it says, the Pharisees 
who were lovers of money heard this and they derided him. The Pharisees were the evangelicals. They were the leaders. They were the back to the Bible crowd. They, Jesus said they said long prayers. They gave into the offering. They heard this parable and they were lovers of money. Jesus went on to say, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. So outwardly, they were like whitewashed sepulchers. Outwardly, they were one thing inside their hearts, and their master passion in life was about things. Now, this man probably thought his riches came from God. Now, we all believe that, right? But, but he thought he was living the blessed life. He, he had done the right things uh, within the right context, and he thought the blessing of God was on him. Proverbs says, if you're industrious, God will make you rich. He had put all these things together, and he was a man of status. It says that this beggar, Lazarus, was laid at his gate. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't live in a gated community. Uh, I don't have a gate, and you probably don't have a gate, and if you do, it's probably some rickety gate you've got to struggle to get open, right? This guy lived in a gated community when everybody lived in like a two-by-four. And Lazarus, a beggar, is laid at his gate. He had an entire life to help this man. I don't think he helped Lazarus in life because look what happens after he dies. He sees Lazarus. He says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. Let him dip his finger in water that he can cool my tongue. He doesn't say, oh my gosh, I'm in hell. Father Abraham, I repent. I want to go to heaven. Have mercy on me. No, no, no. He says, he says uh, send Lazarus to help me because he's less than me. He's a lesser status. He's still giving orders in hell. Unbelievable. What about Lazarus, the beggar? Well, all we know is he's a beggar. That's about all we know. But we do know something else. He's the only person in all four Gospels and all Jesus' parables that's given a name. Jesus talks about a sower who went in a field to sow, a father who had a son, a certain rich man. Why is Lazarus given a name? The name Lazarus in the Hebrew is Eleazar, God has helped me. See, the rich man found his security in his riches. Lazarus, this beggar, and we have no idea why he was a beggar. Life can throw you a curve. We don't know if he was orphaned at birth. We don't know if he had disease. You know, life is tough. We're all dealt a hand of cards. The rich man thought he was blessed by God. Lazarus knew God. And Lazarus, like Job, said, no matter what my condition, God has been my help. God is my source. The rich man's identity was in his riches. Lazarus' identity was in God. If you mark your Bible up, verse 22 is the most important verse. That it came that both of these men died. Everybody's going to die. The grim reaper doesn't show up at a gated community and not go in. Everybody dies. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to be born and a time to die. Now, I didn't need to quote a Bible verse. You all know this, right? You know, ask Siri later. Siri, how many people die? She'll tell you, about 100%, okay? <laughs> Everybody dies. The Bible takes another step in Hebrews. It's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. If the Bible's clear on anything, it's that we're going to give an account for this one and only life. Jesus said, Every idle word that we've spoken, we're going to give an account for. Revelation talks about books. Every word we've ever spoken will be in a book. 
In Matthew 25, Jesus said the Son of Man, when he comes in his glory with his angels, will have the nations before him. And he's going to divide them into two, sheep on his right hand, goats on his left. To the sheep on his right hand, the believers, he's going to say, come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to those on his left, he's going to say, depart from me. You're going into everlasting punishment. And then you've got to read it. About, he said, when I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. You can go back and read that on your own. In John chapter 12, Jesus' final discourse publicly before he would go to the cross, he said this in verse 46, I have come into the world that those who believe in me should not abide in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not believe them, Jesus said, I don't judge him, for I haven't come into the world to judge the world, but to save it. John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. The next verse said, God didn't send the Son of the world to condemn the world, but the world through him would be saved. But he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken will judge him. When? Jesus said on the last day. Death is the great equalizer. Now you don't have to come to Calvary Chapel this morning to know that we're all going to die. Here's the question what happens after you die? For almost the history of the world, you go to another place. The afterworld, and there was many conjurings of that. The Enlightenment came along, and people began to hide behind science, and things began to change. But for all these years, and all the universities, and all the science, we still have about 80% belief in the afterlife in the U.S., 70% in Europe, and 100% in the non-Western world, which drives people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and the New Atheist crazy. They're like, oh my gosh, with all this science and with all this evidence, how can modern man still believe in an afterlife? Uh, Sam uh, Dawkins said it's wish fulfillment. In other words, you get by this life because you'll live happily ever after in the next. Wait a second. We just read about a place called hell and torment. There's not a lot of wish fulfillment there. Uh, Sam Harris said to believe in an afterlife and a resurrection and a God in heaven is to be bordering on mental illness. <laughs> His argument is no one ever came back to tell us, to which I would say well, no one ever came back and told us there wasn't, right? See, these, these guys hide behind PhDs in science and they don't have any more evidence than we do, and we have a lot of evidence. By the way, someone did come back and tell us. Jesus came back. And we have more words from Jesus than anyone in antiquity. That's why Shakespeare said in Hamlet, death is the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. No one knows what happens. Um, I think I told you about a book I picked up years ago called God's Hotel. It's a story of an almshouse, the last almshouse in America. It's in San Francisco. Almshouses used to exist everywhere. Uh, people that couldn't afford health care would go there, and they were treated with dignity. They weren't looked at as a diagnosis. And there were great success stories of recovery there. The woman who led the one in San Francisco uh, studied to be a doctor, and she was looking forward to her first autopsy. And when she did her for first autopsy, she was real nonplussed, like, wow, I really look forward to this, and it wasn't as great as she thought. And she went back and researched medical books pre the 20th century, and she found the words spiritus and anima. 
Uh, Latin words, the, the spiritist was the ghost in the machine, and anima is where we get animation. In other words, there's something in the human body that animates us and makes us who we are. And uh, modern science will say, well, we've looked everywhere for a soul in the body, and we haven't found one. And they're kind of like the cosmonauts, the Soviet guys, when they went into outer space, and they get up there, and they looked around, and they said, we don't see God, ha, 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 ha. And even Christopher Hitchens, an atheist, said, did they really think that's where he was? Like Hitchens is saying, if there's a God, he's not in outer space. He's infinitely eternal. And just like you're not going to find God in outer space, you're not going to find the soul. But it's there. And everybody knows it. Again, most people don't want to talk about death. They live in denial. They know it's coming They don't want to talk about it. You bring up death in a room, they'll change the subject. Most people will scoff it off. Oh, yeah, you know, I'll live again, and I'll come back through my children, and kind of the Lion King theology, the circle of life, and, you know, I'll become the grass, and, you know, I'll live on through my philanthropy and all. I love Woody Allen. What makes him so quotable is his honesty. Woody Allen said, I don't want to achieve immorality through my work. I want to achieve immorality by not dying. He said, I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment in New York City. The rich man in the parable went to hell. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. Now, let me help you with Bible interpretation here because people get crazy in this area. They look at Abraham's bosom, they look at Hades, and they're like, oh, let's build doctrine around this. This is what heaven looks like. This is what hell... Look, Jesus pulled the curtain back for a fleeting moment and showed us the afterlife. What Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we see through a glass dimly. In other words, God has given us just enough revelation to get by. He's not giving us what the whole afterlife would look like. People write books and they talk, you know, they they parse these words like, oh yeah, everybody before Christ went to Abraham's bosom, that's a holding tank. Then when Jesus rose, they went to, look, nobody has any clue how all that works. Uh, Alistair Begg, uh, when he was teaching on the parables, said what a Bible 101 teacher would say. When you're looking at parables, make, keep the main thing the main thing and the plain thing the main thing. Keep the plain thing the main thing. What's the plain thing here? Was Jesus telling this us this parable so we would know all about how the afterlife works? No. He wanted to tell us there is a fate, a final judgment coming. Look at verse 24. The rich man cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said, son, remember in your life you received your good things. Likewise, Lazarus, his evil things, but now you're comforted and he's tormented. Beside, there's a great gulf fixed that no one can pass. A couple things we learn. Two individuals find themselves in two different places. One man's in Abraham's bosom, which is a state of eternal bliss. You can call it heaven or whatever you want to call it. And the other man is in a place of torment that we would call Hades or hell. There is no third option. No one can move one to the other. So let's get a couple things off the table. There's no karma. There's no reincarnation. You're not going to come back as King George II or a tick or anything else, okay? In fact, you ever think about reincarnation? Oh, I don't believe in the Bible. I believe in reincarnation. Oh, really? Where's the evidence for that? 
Oh my gosh, evidence? I mean, are you kidding me? No annihilation. That's a popular teaching today that you'll just be annihilated. You'll go out of Xanax. Poof, your candle goes out. No, all men are conscious here in the afterlife. They remember each other's names. And for my Catholic friends who I love, there is no purgatory. I did a focus group where I had 50 still Catholics there because I was writing a book and I wanted to refresh myself. I was raised Catholic. And I asked them, how many people are going to heaven? Nobody raised their hand. How many people are going to hell? Nobody raised their hand. I knew where they thought they were going. Purgatory. Let me say this, and, and I'm not, uh, this isn't humorous. There is no place in the Bible called purgatory. No place. There's no place in all scripture where anybody talks about a middle ground. Sometimes they'll use scripture to back this up. There is no scripture. The Bible says there's a time to die and then a judgment, and it is final. The idea of somebody praying you out of there, and by the way, that's what a mass card is. A mass card is, you're buying that so people pray you out of heaven. It's just plain not true and nowhere in the Bible. The question everyone should have came in the room today with is, Pastor Bob, do rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven? Is the afterlife the great reversal? Like if I've lived a comfortable life, I'm going to go in hell, and if somebody was poor, they're going to go the other way? Is this the great uprising of the middle class? You know? Remember what I taught you early in the series? Always look in the context. And what's the preponderance of Scripture teach? The overwhelming preponderance of Scripture is we're saved by faith. It's through God's grace, not a gift. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the bankrupt. The people that realize they can't of their own good works attain heaven. They walk through the narrow gate. That has been firmly established in this series. Now, Jesus did say it was hard for the rich to get into heaven. I'm not going to soften his words. He said it was so hard it would be like a camel going through the eye of the needle. Why? Because riches, more than anything, blind you to your need for God. You're the captain of your own fate. You're a self-made man or woman. Riches are blinding. That's why the love of them is the root of all evil. Now, Jesus said what's impossible with man is possible with God. So a rich man going to heaven is impossible with men because nobody's got a blender so strong to get a camel through the eye of the needle, all right? What he's saying is no one's going to heaven without the supernatural love of Almighty God melting a human heart. And for those of you who know Christ, that's exactly what happened. Zacchaeus, come out of that tree today. I'm coming to your house. Melded his heart. There will be plenty of rich people in heaven. Abraham was rich. David was rich. Solomon was rich. Joseph of Arimathea was rich. Zacchaeus was rich. Uh, I know incredibly wealthy people today that are going to heaven. I've seen videos of billionaires who are going to heaven. Poor people are some of the most covetous people on the planet. What it boils down to this is this. The rich man was only known for being rich. Does everybody understand that? This was his identity. In the previous parable, Jesus said, be careful of unrighteous mammon, because you can't serve God and money. You'll either love one or hate the other. The man who built bigger barns loved money more than God. This rich man loved money more than God. 
In his heart, he's still ordering people around. He still looks at himself as a higher status than this beggar, Lazarus. And then get this. He's telling Abraham what to do. You believe this? Now, he goes, he says, look, I'm here. I get it. But I got five brothers. And uh, he tells Abraham, you need to send someone to tell them. And uh, Abraham says, they have the Bible. Now, the guy looks like he's become an evangelist, right? But notice, he never asked to get out. He goes, I have five brothers. Uh, They have the Bible. Can I tell you this? I have staked my entire life on this book. Not because it's a book. I know there's denominations that have Bible idolatry. They worship the book. This is the almighty word of God that he put higher than his name that will live and abide forever. It's the most powerful thing in the universe. Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word. Jesus is the word of God. It's more powerful than any other two-edged sword. It can divide between soul and spirit and joint and marrow. Only scripture, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Only scripture can accomplish what God wants. The Bible's enough. It's forever sure. 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years, all telling the same story, all trumping science, all historically factual. The rich man says, now Abraham, Bible's not enough. You gotta send Lazarus back to my brother's. It's the only way he'll believe. So you think the rich man's being an evangelist to realize he's really siding with Dawkins and Nietzsche, the famous atheists, who were once asked, what happens when you die if you find out you were wrong? Instead of saying, well, then we'll repent, they said, we'll tell God you didn't give us enough information. In other words, the Bible wasn't enough. How much information did the thief on the cross have? He had two scriptures. Above Jesus' head, it said, King of the Jews. And then he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And in that little world of his, he had to make a decision. And the decision was tough because it tells us earlier that both men on either side reviled Jesus and said, if you're the son of God, get off the cross and take us with you. This man finally comes to his senses and in, in, in earshot of the other thief, He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be in paradise. The first one in is a thief, a sinner, covered by grace. I agree with C.S. Lewis. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. I really do. The cry today is, Bible's not enough. Why doesn't God just write my name in the sky? Then I'll believe. Why doesn't God knock on my door? Why doesn't somebody come back and tell us? Do do you know why that doesn't happen, by the way? Because it wouldn't work. See, that's our finite minds. That's the, the, the clay telling the potter what he should do. Do you know why it wouldn't work? Because if somebody legitimately came back from the other side and said, oh my gosh, this is what lies on the other side, everybody would now be good for goodness sake. That's what Santa Claus wants, right? That's not what God wants. God doesn't want you to be good for goodness sake. He wants to have a relationship with you. That's why religious people will be in hell. Lord, we did this in your name. We did that in your name. He's like, I never knew you. He never knew the rich man. In 330 AD, Constantine, who had a very devout mother named Helen, 
converted supposedly to Christianity. Christians before that were burned at the stake. They, they met in the catacombs. They were sent to the lions and so forth. But Constantine announces that Christianity is now the official religion of the Roman Empire. And everybody thought, this is the day we were waiting for. This is that the king believes, right? And what was the result of that? Everybody acquiesced. Yeah, I, Caesar's Lord, Jesus' Lord, whatever, whatever, you know. And, and it swept all these nominal pagans in and left us with a mixture of doctrine that we're still dealing with today in Romanism. Now, I'm about to say something you can quote me on, but don't misquote me because we tape all our services. You could say Pastor Bob told you this. Sins will not send you to hell. Your sins will not send you to hell. Thief on the cross was a sinner. Paul said he was the chief sinner. I'm a sinner. Jesus said every sin a man commits, and by the way, even the sins we don't like on other people, every sin ever committed will be forgiven except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit drawing you to the Father and you rejecting to your final breath. Number two, God will never send anyone to hell. I just read you the words of Jesus. You send yourself. The rich man to me didn't look like he wanted to be in heaven, did he? Like, like if Lazarus appeared to his brothers, they would just buy fire insurance, right? Man, I don't want to go to hell, so tell me the plan. I'll do the right thing. It didn't seem like he wanted to be there. Did you ever see a famous person die and they said they went to the great casino in the sky? Or the great ballpark in the sky? They, they don't want... Think about this. You came to church on a Sunday morning because you love God and you want to sing and you want to see your brothers and sisters and you love the word of God, right? But other people are out doing what they want because they don't want to do this because their heart was never transformed. Why would they want to do it for all of eternity? The Pharisees love money. They love rules. They love celebrity. Their identity was in their goodness. Guys, you've got to get over this hump. Their identity was in their goodness. Identity in your riches. Identity in your profession. Identity in something other than God. That focus group I talked to you about, 50 people that weren't going to heaven or hell, I said, all right, I get it. You guys are humble, and it sounds preposterous to say you're going to go to heaven. So let's say you could go. Why would you go? And every person in the room said, because we're... A good person. The hardest thing to convince every, anyone of is there will be good people in hell. Really, really nice people who trusted in their niceness. Hell is a freely chosen identity based on something other than God. Something other than a relationship with him. Let me go through a few FAQs. Is earth hell? You ever hear somebody say that? Well, here's what I believe, earth's hell. Um, not the last time I checked. Um, the rich man needs a drink. You can go out and get any drink you want. Uh, you live in a world created by God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is his handiwork. Uh, there's people made in the image of God. Yeah, but Pastor Bob, you don't know my life. You don't know my situation. Yeah, well, let's say you have the worst situation. Most of our movies are about really bad situations like Helen Keller, where people stepped in with kindness and there's a grand story to tell. Number two, is the fire literal? 
Again, this is a parable. We have to be careful. Uh, I don't know if it is or isn't. I would probably lean to it isn't. Um, Fire is a symbol of judgment and consumption. Uh, Think about a log in your fireplace burning. It just burns away. I think people who don't know God in this life, there's something they're holding on to. There's something driving them, their identity. Career, riches, love, faith. I don't know what it is. And you know it and I know it. Those things don't fulfill in this life. That's why you need more and more. That's why you have to drink more and more, take more drugs, more sex, right? Um, For all of eternity, that's never filled. The worm doesn't die. And here's the question I've asked at least 100 times. Why doesn't God just give him a second chance? God, just give him a second chance. Give this rich man a second chance. And God finally answered my question. Remember I said if you seek him long enough, he'll answer? And God answered my question. He already did. Everyone in here is playing with house money. We've already got a second chance. He who knew no sin became sin. The God of heaven left heaven and was born in the straw of poverty and died on a cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We were given a second chance, every one of us. I was thinking of uh, this scripture where it says that it's God's desire that none would perish, but all would come to the knowledge of truth. People turn it around and say, well, if it's not God's desire and if he's God, then why are they perishing? Because he gave you free choice. It's not his desire that any would perish. Think about what God has allowed in our day. Downloads, CDs, DVDs, the internet. Also, the gospel could go to the ends of the earth. Also, everyone could hear. This verse 25, Abraham says to the rich man, son, son, listen. He doesn't say, you buffoon, you idiot. He says, son, you had a Bible. You had the prophets. To people of our generation, you knew about Christmas, you knew about Easter. Another question is, what about people that never heard? Well, you've heard. We've already talked about that. Don't worry about everybody else. God will judge men and women on the light they have seen. And we just leave it there. I want to close in the book of Revelation, if you can get there, chapter 20. There's a series of verses I want to read, and then I'll make a final comment. John said that he saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. I told you there's only two types of everything. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So in other words, there's two books. There's a book of everything that's ever been recorded, and then there's a book of life. You want to be judged on the book of life. That's grace, not not on everything you've ever said. The sea gave up the dead. The death gave up its dead. They were thrown in the lake of fire. Chapter 21, verse 1 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first one passed away. John said, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, prepared, prepared for Like a bride for her husband, I heard a loud voice saying, the tabernacle of God is with men, and God will wipe away all their tears. There's no more death, no sorrow, no crying. 
He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new, right, for all these words are true and faithful. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the verse I want to leave you with, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murders, sexually immortal, sodomites, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire, and that's the second death. Can I tell you that if God left it up for me, I'd let a lot of people in? Anyone who wanted a second chance, I, uh, okay, you're in, okay. And then I would have just ruined heaven. We've had enough crying. Can you imagine in some of these places where kids have seen their parents blown apart by war? Can you imagine the horrific things that have gone on? We would, I would have just ruined heaven. Those sins I just mentioned, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, sodomites, immoral, there will be people in heaven who have committed all these sins, but they're not identified with them because they identify with Christ. The thief on the cross and millions who have ever lived who had committed these sins will be there. But there will be people there who are still identified this way because they closed their heart to the God of grace. Where I want to leave you this morning is this. Are you Eleazar? Are you Lazarus? Is God your help? Or are you hanging your hat on another hook? In a few minutes, we're going to stand, we're going to sing. There's going to be pastors and elders and people that love to counsel and pray with people. There is a God whose arms are wide open, and you've got your second chance. And if you'll humble yourself and acknowledge all that He's done, the Bible says you'll be saved. Well, Pastor Bob, what about my father who died? My brother, God's shoulders are big enough to handle that, not yours. The judge of all the earth will do right. Let's stand and let's sing.